0: Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clear Note Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Let me read our scripture for today. It's in Genesis 16. I'm going to read the whole chapter again. We'll pick up from where we studied last week. It's again the account of Abram taking Hagar as his wife. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please, go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. "'And Sarai said to Abram, "'May the wrong done me be upon you. "'I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, "'I was despised in her sight. "'May the Lord judge between you and me.' "'But Abram said to Sarai, "'Behold, your maid is in your power. "'Do to her what is good in your sight.' "'So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence.' Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Ber-Lehai-Roi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Barad. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. This is the word of the Lord. Now here we have this account continuing, this account of Abram and Sarai who have been 10 years in the land of Canaan. It's been 10 years since God made this promise to Abram back in chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house." to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And so Abram and Sarai are tired of waiting for God to fulfill the promise that he has made to them. And they decide that they will take matters into their own hands. And so we read in verse 1, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. Hagar is an Egyptian, and Hagar is Sarai's personal maid. So this would have been an intimate relationship between a maidservant and her mistress, who is, who is Sarai. Waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise has been difficult for Abram and Sarai, and so quite understandably, given the weakness of our human nature and our propensity to be resistant, to waiting on the Lord, Sarai took matters into her own hands. So Sarai said to Abram, verse 2, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children through her. And that construction is really, perhaps I will be built through her. So you look at uh, Sarai's vision of having children that she would essentially adopt, they would be children of a second wife, but by her will, and she, her reputation, her joy, her progeny, her descendants, Abram, her husband, would be built by this act of magnanimity on her part. Sarai approached Abram, she said, please, scripture is clear, it was Sarah herself who came up with the plan and took the initiative to carry it out. She phrased it in terms of her desire to build herself up. And we're told, not that Abram listened to his own lust, not that he cast off love for his wife for biological reproduction, but that he listened to the voice of his wife, Sarai. Abram listened to Sarah, and he went in to Hagar. This is a way of saying that he and Hagar had sexual relations. Verse 3, and after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as what? As his wife. Now, when we read this statement that she was his wife, we kind of recoil from it because we think, well, no, you can't have more than one wife. He's already married to Sarai. And it's interesting that when Calvin preaches on this text, Calvin says that this relationship with Sarai, Abram, or with Hagar, Abram and, and, and Hagar, is sort of between adultery and marriage. And so we have a tendency to just poo-poo it and just say, well, it's, 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 it's like a... It's like, a, it's like a tumor, you know? And we're, we're sort of dismissive about it, but note here that it does say his wife. It doesn't use the word concubine. There is some cross-pollination between the Hebrew concubine and the Hebrew wife, but the word here used his wife, and, and so it's very interesting that the next sermon that Calvin preaches, he refers here in this text To Abram being Hagar's husband. And so it's a very difficult thing to to, to look at this and to think about it biblically and properly, right? Abram is her husband and Sarai is his wife. Excuse me, Hagar is his wife. Hagar was not a concubine but a wife. And so this means... Her son born to her by her union with Abram was a legitimate son. And we see the legitimacy of this son confirmed by the next to last verse of our text, verse 15, which reads, So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. So God named Ishmael, and when Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael, He was acknowledging this son to be the proper son of his born to one of his two wives. This was a legitimate son. And we properly condemn men, and particularly men of God in the Old Testament, for taking more than one wife. This is not as it was from the beginning. In the beginning, God gave Eve alone to Adam. We like to remind people who want to argue the homosexualist position that when God made a companion for Adam, he made Eve and not Steve, right? It's a helpful thing to make the point that the order of creation is heterosexual. It's not homosexual. But the same thing is true that when God gave Eve to Adam, he did not give Eve and Miriam and Mary. But he gave Eve. Just one woman for one man, and the two becoming one. Not the three or four, the five, or in Solomon's case, the thousand. One. The two, Jesus says, shall become one. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh, says our Lord. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. So as I said, we properly condemn polygamy. But let us not confuse polygamy with fornication and adultery. And let us not confuse polygamy and the status of this son Ishmael with the status of children today who are born to single mothers. Children whose fathers refuse to own them as their own because they refuse to promise lifelong commitment and support to the woman who bore them the child. That is not what we see Abram doing. Abram does not cheat and on the sly inseminate a woman and then leave for somebody else next weekend. He doesn't hook up. And we want to condemn Abram for what he did, and we rightly, we rightly do that, but don't make any mistake in com- thinking that there's a comparison between that and what is all over the Western world in America today. Abram took responsibility. Abram was there, and he named his son. Abram accepted the responsibility of his actions. Pretty much. <laughs> and we'll go on now. And so he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. Being pregnant, she came to despise her mistress. She hasn't had a child yet. She's pregnant. She despises her mistress. She doesn't wait until she gives birth to the child. But just being pregnant, she despises her mistress. In Proverbs 30, 21 to 23, it says, Under three things the earth quakes, and under four it cannot bear up. Under a slave when he becomes king, and a fool when he is satisfied with food, under an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she supplants her mistress. And that's what's going on here. Hagar is supplanting Sarai, her mistress. And the Bible tells us that the world cannot bear up under such a thing. Imagine the difficulties Sarai faced taming her jealousy and envy when she saw the swelling of Hagar's belly. Imagine the pride of Hagar as her belly swelled. Anyone who knows the pregnancy of conception in the relationship of husband and wife knows there will be trouble here. (laughs) What do I mean by the pregnancy of conception? Am I being redundant? No, I'm not. When a man loves a woman and she becomes pregnant and her belly begins to swell, They have hit a pregnant moment in their life, right? In other words, the air becomes static. Everything becomes heavier. Everything in their relationship becomes more glorious. Everything's weightier. In other words, pregnancy, conception, makes life serious. We all agree? I always tell men whose wives are about to give birth to their first child that you don't know your wife. Meet her the moment after she gives birth. It's all over for you. She is a new woman. If any woman give birth, she is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. (laughs) She has turned from being a wife to being a mother. And so here we have Hagar's belly swelling, and the air is thick with tension and danger, as Sarai casts a furtive glance at Hagar's belly, and then at Hagar's husband, also her own husband, Abram. The air gets heavier with tension and danger when Hagar catches Sarai looking at her belly and then at Abram. And the air gets even more tense and dangerous when Abram notices a new air to the strut of Hagar as she passes in front of Sarai with her swollen belly. It's clear that she has supplanted her mistress because of her pregnancy. Her mistress Sarai intended her pregnancy to build her own name and her own house. But instead, her pregnancy is building her maidservant's name and her maidservant's house. She, Sarai, thought it would be a win-win situation, but it turned out to be a lose-lose situation, and now things are going bad-bad. Verse 5, Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms. But when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. She's not a happy camper. Abram's first wife took her complaint to her husband, Abram, and she blamed him for his second wife, Hagar's ill treatment and disrespect. May the wrong done me be upon you. And she ends by saying, may the Lord judge between what? Not between me and Hagar. That's what you would expect. But she says, may the Lord judge between you and me. Now, a word here about gratitude. I encourage you to read Dead People. And I do it. And Stephen says normally we don't, but I hope you do. I hope Stephen was lying on the men's retreat. I hope you read, because reading is fun. No better day, moment in my day than when Mary Lee and I are both in bed at night, one of her legs is over one of mine, and we're both reading. Cultivate reading. Reading will allow you to cast off of this, the, the wicked harbor of Vanity Fair that you live in and go to another time and another place. And there's no better time and place than to go back to the Puritans, go back to the Reformers, go back to Scripture, read dead Christians. Because they will not have been corrupted by your culture and so you'll be freed from your culture when you read them. you also realize how much your culture is like theirs. But they won't be flattering you because they're dead. They have no motivation to flatter you. And you can choose the men that you want. The men I really enjoy are, <laughs> it sounds pretentious, I don't mean it to sound pretentious, but I love Martin Luther and John Calvin. And as I looked at older men and women that I respected, I heard them talk about Calvin and Augustine and Luther. And so those are the men I read. Okay? And you can't go wrong. And I'm just boringly normal across the centuries to tell you I read them. Okay? I know it seems weird now. People aren't putting up on Facebook quotes of Luther and Calvin and Augustine. Trust me. But... That's just, who knows why. That's because they don't have pastors telling them to read Luther and Calvin. So anyhow, I'm reading Luther and Calvin. One of the reasons I choose those men is every time I read them, I find that they're shepherds of my soul. I find that they slap me around and then cuddle me. And then slap me around. And then cuddle me some more. And I find that I always desire godliness when I read Calvin and Luther and Augustine. So, I hope I'm seducing you to Calvin Luther Augustine. Well, here I read Luther's work on Genesis, and he goes off for about maybe three or four pages here on gratitude. Now, why does he go off on gratitude? Well, he goes off on gratitude because what should Hagar have been? Hagar should have been grateful. To Sarai and to Abram. Hagar, even if she wasn't grateful to Sarai, should have been grateful to Abram that she had been raised from the position of a maidservant to the position of a queen. But she's not grateful. Instead, the minute she gets lifted up and has a child by the master of the household. She turns around and she just parades her gift from God over her mistress, her former mistress. And this is what happens to us in our life, isn't it? We do show kindness to other people, and those people do take advantage of our kindness. This is what happens right? And then, oh my, we just are filled with self-righteous indignation. You know, we're bitter, we're jealous, we're envious, we're angry. We, we ply the main trade of America today, which is victimhood. You know, we're just like, we're indignant. How could they turn around and pay me back for all, after all I've done? You know, we're a Jewish mother. You know how many, how many, how many Jewish mothers it takes to cha- change a light bulb? None, I'll just sit here in the dark. Some of you have mothers like this, right? Some of your mothers, oh man, they just never stop reminding you of all they've done for you so that you can have the life you have, right? Some of you mothers are doing that to your children right now. And so we would think that Hagar would be grateful to Sarai for her kindness, but instead she receives neither gratitude nor loyalty from Hagar, but rather disdain. Instead of appreciating and loving her former mistress, Hagar turns her privilege into an occasion to despise Sarai. And this is human nature. The one who is under another gloats when he's lifted above his former superior. And we see this all the time in our work, in our church, and particularly in our homes. We care for the needy, and they return to us in gratitude for our kindness. We raise our children, diapering, nursing, clothing, bathing, and teaching them. And when they get to adulthood, they turn their backs on our service and instruction and cast us off with our God. We care for our elderly parent, diapering, nursing, clothing, bathing, and teaching him. And when he dies, he turns his back on our service and leaves us nothing for our labors of love. This is life. This is the life of sinful man and woman. And none of us have any trouble recognizing Hagar's ungrateful torment of Sarai. And none of us have any trouble recognizing Sarai's response too. In fact, we see both women at once in our own sinful hearts. We're very good at keeping track. We're very good at, at, at dissing the gifts and kindnesses others have shown us pointing out their ulterior motives. And then we're very good at being precious about the lack of gratitude of other people to us. Looking at what we have given others as if it's pure as if it has no selfish motivation, as if it's just given from the largeness of our godly hearts. You see that? At the same time, we diminish and, 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 and neglect our obligations to others. And we hold just perfect indignation over other people not being grateful to us, you know. It reminds me of Chesterton saying that sometimes he fights with himself. In in ourselves, we both understand ingratitude and victimhood. And we're, we're precious. And listen, none of us have any reason, none of us have any reason to be bitter. None of us have any reason to be resentful. None of us are in any way victims. Everything we get from God is undeserved. I had such an entitlement mentality when I was a child. I mean, I invented it. And I'd go to my mother, and I'd explain to her what I deserved, and she'd look at me and she'd say, Tim, you don't deserve anything. And she was absolutely right. I don't know how many times she, I wish she was here today to keep telling me. I don't deserve anything. You don't deserve anything. And those of us who spend our lives preciously counting and keeping a record of our hurts and of how others have not been grateful to us, are going to wake up one day standing before God and you're going to realize that the real thing you should have been keeping track of is your ingratitude to God. You should have been keeping track of every good and perfect gift that comes down from above, from the Father of the heavenly lights. You should have noticed how he causes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. You should have recognized that that A was a mistake. That GPA does not represent any part of reality. Your good one, not your bad one. Your bad one is reality, and it's not as bad as it should have been. You know, you actually got the husband you deserve. (laughs) You actually got the mother you deserve. And you say, oh no, you don't know how awful my mother was. And I say, no matter how awful she was, she wasn't as bad as she should have been given the wickedness of your heart. You say, oh no, my heart isn't wicked. Your heart is wicked. I say, well yeah, mine is, but so is yours. You say, no, I'm a woman. I can't have a wicked heart. this is our culture our culture is completely ungrateful and demanding and it never stops and our psychiatrists and our psychologists and our school counselors flatter us telling us that we're right to complain and that we we've, we've been done wrong you know and typically it's not your mother that done you wrong it's your daddy because it's just a lot easier to blame daddy than mother, you know? Right? You all know this, right? And so we're ungrateful. Listen to what Luther says. Luther says, many examples prove that the expectations of men are deceptive. So he's going to talk about men that want a wife. And he says, many examples prove that the expectations of men are deceptive. He's saying that when a man goes out to get a wife, he's going to get snookered. Why are you laughing? (laughs) I like that. And then he says, quote, a man looking around for a wife carefully selects for himself one of whom he hopes that she will reflect his own ways in a most pleasing manner. (laughs) But the hidden recesses of the heart are inscrutable. In other words, he can go out and try to find himself a wife, but he has no idea what he's doing. Eh? 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 The hidden recesses of her heart are inscrutable. Gradually, pride, jealousy, and irascibility come to the fore. (laughs) Now, you don't know what irascibility is, do you? In the first service, I said, Curtis Cook is irascible. But he's not really, he's a teddy bear. So who is irascible? I would say I am. But more of you are also. Irascible means she just can't please her. You know, she, she's just always finding fault and you can't predict her, you can't please her. And so Luther says, here this dude goes out, he's going to find a wife. It's going to be a wife that's going to take his interests at heart. And she's just going to be a good wife, you know. And then he wakes up after the honeymoon and he finds pride, jealousy, and irascibility. And then he says, learn therefore that such is the character of the world, for just as God is God, that is, just as God is kind and good, so the world is the world, and the world is ungrateful and evil. Therefore, let those who want to live under God be ready to serve those who will reciprocate. Do you think that's what he says? No, he says, Therefore, let those who want to live under God be ready to serve everybody. And let them accustom themselves to putting up with ingratitude. The monks, and you're thinking, what? The monks? The monks? We don't have monks? Well, actually, yeah, we do. I had one of them very angry with me recently when I was talking about the Blessed Virgin Mary. I think he's become a friend. We have monks. So Luther is writing at the time of the Reformation, and from here, he goes directly into the monks. And you think, well, what is he talking about monks for? I thought we were talking about marriage. He says, the monks, and remember, until a couple years earlier, he had been a monk himself. He says, the monks who had no knowledge of God or of people. (laughs) Oh, now this gets interesting. His mind immediately goes to showing the failure of the Roman Catholic Church. But we're so precious today, we can't even talk about that without having people say we're bad. But Luther, he says, the monks who had no knowledge of God or of people withdrew into the deserts and there lived for themselves. And all of a sudden, it all begins to make sense, doesn't it? If you see that the world is, in fact, proud, jealous, and ungrateful, it would kind of make sense to stay single, wouldn't it? it would make sense not to have roommates because it's so hard having roommates because you fight, (laughs) right? You fight. And then Luther says, but this is by no means Christian. You should remain in the world and among people and you should endure the annoyances of the world and of Satan and not be overcome by the flesh. For to overcome the malice of human beings is the mark not only of a man, but of a Christian. In other words, Christians have people over to their houses for dinner who won't invite them back. That's what Christians do. Verse 5, And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maiden to your arms. When she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your mate is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. And this is what is known as tit for tat, as returning evil for evil, as an eye for an eye, as payback, as serves your right, as one bad turn deserves another, as two wrongs making a right. Hagar was ungrateful to Sarai, So Sarai broke the marriage, and it serves Hagar right. But was it really Sarai who broke the marriage and sent Hagar off? No, it wasn't Sarai, was it? But it was Abram. Verse 6, Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. And so don't blame Sarai. She was only doing what came naturally to a jealous woman or more, to a jealous wife. Don't blame Sarai, but blame Abram. He was the head of his home. And he had taken Hagar for his wife. The buck stopped with Abram because the buck stopped with Adam because the buck has been decreed by God always to stop with Adam, with the man, with the husband, with the father who is the head of the home. And yet I think we recognize ourselves in Abram, don't we? Here is the sin of what? Abdication. Abram ought to have ruled his home in such a way as to protect both Hagar and Sarai. He should have ruled his home in such a way as to bring both Hagar's ingratitude and Sarah's jealousy and torment of Hagar to an end. But instead, he left matters to two women. (laughs) And three guesses, who won? Now, think about this, people. Three guesses, who won? Who would your money have been on? Well, we're so superficial today, our money would probably have been on the youthful, beautiful woman. But we're fools. We're fools. Our money should have been on the woman of the house, the real woman of the house, because she's no fool. Hagar had played her hand, and she'd played it well, Who would have believed Abram would choose his older wife over his younger wife? Wasn't beauty everything? And if not youthfulness and beauty, certainly pregnancy would have trumped. Infertility would have trumped barrenness. But poor Hagar had overestimated youthfulness and beauty and fertility. She'd overstepped her bounds, and now she was going to pay for it. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now, where did Hagar flee? She fled to the upper northwest frontier, northeast frontier of Egypt. So you've got Canaan here and then Egypt down here with the Nile. And so she went up, and where we read that she's found In verse 7, by the spring on the way to Shur, where we read is right up in the upper frontier in the northeast of Egypt. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water there. And so where was she going? Probably back home, but she probably didn't have a back home to go to. She'd had no contact. She had been a maidservant. And so she's wandering. The angel of the Lord comes to her there. Verse 8, he says, Hagar, Sarai's maid... Where have you come from and where are you going? And she answered the first question, but she didn't answer the second question. She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. Note that the angel is reminding Hagar that she is the maid servant, he is reminding her of her subordinate status. He doesn't call her wife. What he says is, Hagar, Sarai's maid. And note that at this point, Hagar is humbled. And she herself says, My mistress, Sarai. She only answers the first of the two questions, likely because she doesn't know where she's going. She only knows where she's coming from and why. She's fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord responds, verse 9, then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Uh, literally, the end of the verse is place yourself under her hand or literally accept ill treatment from her hand. And how did Sarah respond to God's command? Well, we see from the very end of the account, at the end of the chapter, that she bore Abram a son and that Abram named the son. So we know that she was back home. Was she promised, when she was commanded to go back, was she promised that there would be no more abuse? No. Now, at this point, again, being filled with the conceit of our age where we know everything, we say, well, that's oppressive. God's angel should never have sent her back to that man. Never have sent her back under the authority of that man's first wife. Why? Well, because she's abused. Was she being abused? Yes, she was absolutely being abused. And yet, the angel of the Lord told her to go back. Now, does this mean that one of the parts of being a Christian is we believe that wives who are being beaten by their husbands should stay in the home? No. Does this mean that we believe that wives whose husbands are committing adultery on the computer in their household should keep their mouths shut and submit to his abuse? No. Does this mean that a husband or a wife who are cruel verbally to their spouse should bear up under it silently? No. God has given the church to govern the home and to protect it. God has given the elders of the church the job of protecting wives and children in the homes of the church by disciplining the father and the husband yesterday, I got a phone call from a pastor. He wanted to know what I thought he should do in a situation he had a uh, He had a couple coming to meet with him, and the um, the presenting issue was that Uh, the father of the woman who was coming to meet with him had forbidden her to be in a relationship with the man and to contemplate marriage to the man. And this is not an uncommon thing in the church where you have a father who refuses permission when he's asked for permission to marry, he refuses it. And so then you have to think, well, the wedding's coming, and at the wedding, he's going to walk her down the aisle, and he's going to be asked, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And he's either going to say, I do, or he's not going to say anything at all. And as Christians, we believe that part of honoring our father and our mother is to get permission to marry. But the minute we agree to that, then this becomes a huge place where a father can abuse his authority. And it's common for Christian fathers to abuse their authority by refusing to give permission to their children, and specifically their daughters, to marry, but not because their daughter has gotten involved with an unbelieving man, right? You know, that's a proper place for the father to refuse to give permission. Not because there is something about the man's character that he wants to protect his daughter from, despite his confessing Christian faith. But typically, the reason fathers refuse to give permission is that a father wants his daughter to go through undergrad, then through grad school, and then get established in a profession and marry a man who will do at least as well as she will financially. He wants his daughter to be financially independent. He does not want his daughter to ever be in a position where she looks to him for help. And one of the best ways to do that is if she's bright and if she's disciplined for his daughter to become at least a nurse and preferably a veterinarian or a physician. Because then, even if she marries a scoundrel, he doesn't need to worry because she'll have money and his retirement nest egg will remain pristine, untouched, He will feel no obligation to help his children, his grandchildren. And so you you will have situations like this where the couple will come to you and they'll say, what are we supposed to do? And you have to make a decision. This is precisely where God has given you the gift of elders. Precisely where elders are a gift to you. Because if you're a woman whose husband is looking at pornography, if you're a woman whose husband is abusing you, audibly, in the presence of your children. You have a husband who's going around calling you names, let alone if you have a husband that's hitting you. You go to the elders. They have authority over the home. I know this is a shock to all homeschoolers in America. But guess what? It doesn't stop with your husband. It goes to God. And there's a progression. The progression is it goes to the church fathers, and then it goes to the civil magistrate. God has ordained them. And so when we talk about the angel of the Lord coming to Hagar and telling her to return and submit to her maid, I mean, to her mistress, to, to Sarai, this is not her going back and getting beaten, right? But this is her going back and suffering under Sarai. Make no mistake about that. And you say, well, where were the elders? And I say, <laughs> it was Abram. And you say, well, that's not right. She shouldn't be sent back. And I say, okay, so, so what should she have done? And you say, revolution! Revolution! And I say, no, submission. And you say, we just got done telling we should go to the elders. I say, yes, because God's given you the church. And God's given you civil magistrate. There weren't no civil magistrates around this woman. She was at a well in the frontier of Egypt. And you say, well, it's not right. And I'm saying, nobody ever said it was right. There's sin all around. But don't, don't forget that she was parading her pregnancy over Sarai. And you say, oh, so in other words, if she's sinning, then it's okay to abuse her. And you say, no, 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 no. But what are we going to do? Are going to keep compounding everything with sin? <laughs> you know, you got infertility, and so he should go into her, and then she gets pregnant, and she should lord it over her, and then Sarai should be punitive to her and then she should, you know, it's like okay, okay, fine. Let's do evil that evil may, ad- may advance, you know? Listen, an awful lot of our lives are spent submitting to authorities who are not benevolent. There's not a wife here who submits to a husband who cannot give us At the drop of the hat, 10 reasons why she should never submit to her husband again. And if there is a wife here who can't give us 10 reasons, it's because she's deluded. E L U D, not I L U T. She's bonkers. She's crazy. She doesn't know her husband. Every husband is a sinner. Every husband does not live by faith. Every husband does not do what he ought to do. Every husband is insensitive and a brute. And you say your husband is very sensitive, and I say, oh, precious you. (laughs) He's just pulling the wool over your eyes. He's devious with his sensitivity. You say, oh, no, not my husband. My husband's perfect, and I say, you must be a homeschooler. Sometimes I have to make jokes, (laughs) but it's not quite a joke. (laughs) I've spent a lot of my life around women who tell me that their husband is the most godly leader in the world, and then the things that come out of those homes are mind-boggling. And so I just want to break us all down to humility again, and I think right now it's time for homeschoolers to be broken down to humility. Okay? And don't worry, Meryl and I have been homeschoolers, and we have children who are homeschoolers. Okay? Now, the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. And then, verse 10 Moreover, the angel of the Lord, so he went on, and he said, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that she'll be too many to count. This is an unbelievable thing. She has rejected the authority of her husband. And her mistress, she has run away. She has been a rebel against them. She has been sinful. And God meets her where she is and promises that she will have many descendants. And this is the way God is. How many times you look at your sin and you just try to stiff arm God, you're going to make it on your own because he doesn't give you what you want. And so you go into sin, and he takes that choke chain, and bam, you know, he chokes you with it. And then he gives you good gifts. It's like, where did that come from? And it came from his mercy. The angel of the Lord said to her further, behold, you are with child, and you shall bear it. So she's going to be a great nation. She's with child. She knew that, but she's going to have a son. She's going to have a son. She didn't know that. She didn't have ultrasound. You're going to have a son. And you shall call his name Ishmael, which means God hears, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. This is unbelievable. That God would give her his ear, his eyes, his knowledge, his awareness in her affliction. And look at the blessings that God's pouring out on her. You know, there in the frontier of Egypt. <laughs> you know, all alone with her little baby. And God sees this servant girl who was raised to the bed of her master, became his wife, is all alone in the frontier pregnant. And he sends the angel of the Lord to Don't take advantage of women. God knows women. They bear his image and his likeness. Because the Lord has given heed to your infliction, And then she says this, and this is for Bob. Bob, you with me? Make sure he's with me. He's got to hear this. Hey, Bob. Hey, Bob, you got to hear this part. Okay, you with me? Okay. The angel of the Lord says to Hagar about this son that's in her womb, and he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. Now, I had. I had Bob waken because every year I get a gift from Bob at Christmas, right? Some of you know what it is. Every year I get a calendar, a a picture calendar. Every page is the picture of a jackass. And the reason Bob gives this to me is because I'm a jackass. And, you know, some of them are kind of pretty with colors and a field and others... You know, the jackass has his mouth wide open and all the teeth are coming out and he has this wild look in his eyes. And the Bible tells us that Ishmael's is a wild, and in the RSV it's translated a wild ass of a man. Because a jackass is actually a male ass. That's the meaning, a jackass. And Bob knows I'm male. All right. But the ESV, which is really the RSV with a couple of changes. Of course it changes, this one. And it says donkey. But what is a donkey? Well, a donkey is a, a certain type of ass. <laughs> and so The Hebrew here is real sort of direct, earthy, farmers get it. Why? Well, because asses simply won't be domesticated. They are irascible. They're cantankerous. And that's what it's saying. He'll be a wild ass of a man and everyone's hand will be against him, and he, his hand will be against everyone else. And so, <laughs> what's Ishmael going to be like? Well, some of you gave birth to a child like this. <laughs> right? You know? You had a child who his hand was against everyone, and everyone was against his hand. And that's what Ishmael's going to be like. So now, is this a blessing or a curse? Well, I could argue it either way. If you're a woman who's been cast out because of the oppression of the woman, the top woman in the house, and you're out in the middle of the frontier pregnant, it might be a bit of a comfort to know that your son's going to be a wild ass of a man. And he's going to be against everyone, everybody, and he's going to grow to be a great nation. You might feel safe knowing that that's who you're going to give birth to, right? On the other hand, it can be a punishment, can it? First of all, it's not going to be easy to raise him. And second, it's very clear that God is not just giving you all the goodies he can. You're getting a lot of goodies, a lot of blessings you don't deserve. But would you notice here that she is not told that this son will be a blessing to all nations. Now listen, I don't like to say this, but you must recognize that the promises that Hagar is getting in connection with her son are not promises for anything but this life. They're not promises for the life to come. And so it really is sad when you compare these promises to the promises that are given to Sarai. But what's very interesting about this whole history is what? Well, listen. God is handling everything in such a way that it is absolutely clear that it is, what, not by hip, custom brews, and soul patches, and deaconesses, and collars, and, and robes and weekly communion and all this talk of Catholicity and good homeschooling and lots of talk about providence and not by might nor by strength, but, but, come on by my spirit. Listen, we look at the church today and all around us what we see is hipsterism. All around us we see the church trying to be just like the world but just a little different. We see her videos, we see her podcasts, we see her books, we see her conferences, we see all this blather about God's providence and God's God's grace, and and what it all amounts to is an attempt on our part to not be dependent on the Holy Spirit to build his church. I remember one man who was the golden boy of church planning in the PCA, a dear friend of mine, but he had sin, and his sin caused his entire staff to resign. And listen, when your entire staff resigns, it's not good, you know. But he survived it. And then about a year to two years later, guess what happened? His entire staff, except his secretary, resigned again. Different staff resigned again. And I remember asking him, he just put up a a many million dollar building in a very, very, very wealthy city, (laughs) which I won't name. And I remember asking him, you know, because he told me that that, that I knew that all his people had left. You know, everybody when they strike the shepherds the sheep scatter i knew that everybody had left the church and i remember him saying to me oh i said how are you how are you paying the mortgage and he said oh don't worry about it he said he said we have a new we have a new congregation it, we got a new congregation immediately well why well because the holy spirit was present no that wasn't what he was saying what he was saying is that and he didn't use these words, but he was saying, you know, I know, how to, I know how to run the system. I know how to get people. I know how to get people. And so, all the sheep were, were gone. It don't matter. We got new sheep. And the living goes on, as Kierkegaard would say, <laughs> you know. And listen, we have a choice. And our choice is to depend upon the Holy Spirit and to not think it's by might or by strength, but by the Spirit. Or to think that if we homeschool a certain way, if we have a certain kind of living arrangement, if we have a large enough bank account, if if our church has a hipster image and we have women serving communion and, and, and children taking communion, you know... We we do the sacraments weekly, we have sort of this ancient modern shtick. It don't matter, you know, we'll we'll get another five hundred people when this five hundred leaves, you know? And so the truth about Hagar and Ishmael and Abram and Sarah, Abram's wife, his first wife is that when they thought that they would live by might and by strength, God said, no, you won't. You will live by my spirit. And then... Sarai became pregnant. And she is good as dead. Nobody could have any question in their minds where the child of promise, the son of promise, came from. He was a miracle. He was a miracle. Ishmael's is the son of the flesh. Isaac is the son of the spirit. Okay? And so look for opportunities to depend on God. Don't resent them. Don't resent your weakness, your vulnerability. Don't keep track of your wrongs. Don't give only to those who will be grateful. Live by the Spirit of God. And God will pour blessings upon you. Don't keep track. Be forgetful. Because God doesn't forget anything, least of all, his promises to you, his own child. Let's pray. Father God, we do confess that we are terribly wicked and ungrateful to you, and that we do keep track, and that we are fearful, and that we want to take matters into our own hands. Indeed, that we do constantly take matters into our own hands that we want the child of the flesh instead of the child of the Spirit and that we have selected from our children the right one for you. That, Father, we submit to you because you are our Father and it's right for us to submit to our Father as your Son did. And, Father, we pray that you will give us faith that we will repent of our sin and live by faith and that our chief Desire and delight in life will be for you to receive glory. Give these things to us, Father, because we know that they will please you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.